Okay. <laughs> well, good morning, Chillicothe Bible Church. Happy Mother's Day, y'all. Uh, this morning, it, we're uh, going to open the Word of God together uh, into Ephesians chapter 5. We have been uh, moving our way in this series on discipleship and what it means to, um, to follow Jesus and be transformed by Jesus and to be on mission with Jesus. We're in the midst of the, the being transformed by Jesus portion of that going to be a disciple you're going to have to do all three of those things you're going to have to follow jesus you're going to have to experience transformation from jesus and then join jesus mission of making disciples of all nations around the world Uh, and uh, as so as part of the transformation part of that we've been looking at the last three chapters Uh, we haven't got to chapter six yet but we will today uh, of the book of ephesians which are all about experiencing transformation in your relationship with God. Your, your relationship with God has two dimensions. It has a vertical dimension, uh, a you and God portion, and then it has a horizontal dimension, a you and everybody else uh, aspect to it, right? Uh, because just as the law says, you know, there's uh, love the Lord your God on one side of the table and uh, love your neighbor as yourself on the other side, right? Well, in the same way, if you're going to follow Jesus and you're going to experience His transformation, it's got to get into your relationships with other people. And it's got to get down into the nitty-gritty of where you live in, ter- in terms of how you conduct yourselves in the, in the, most, uh, the most challenging and sometimes uh, the most time-consuming Uh, relationships in your life the portion of your life where you really live your relationship with your spouse if you have one your relationship with your kids and with your parents uh, your relationship with your employer or your employees as the case might be Uh, these three aspects of relationship have to be transformed by your relationship with Jesus and so we're going to look at all three of these aspects of relationship today And uh, before we do that, I want to pray as we open God's Word and just focus our hearts on, not on uh, what we hear, but on what God's Word says and on our obedience to it. So let's pray. Father, uh, the passage we're about to look at challenges us all at various levels and points in its teaching. We know that your word is for our good, and our obedience to it is meant to bring you glory. And so, Father, I pray that we would not resist the Holy Spirit when it speaks to us. That when he speaks, that we would listen and that we would have open hearts to hear and to obey your word. And, Father, we pray that that indeed Jesus would transform the way we conduct ourselves in relationship with with each other, that husbands and wives would have relationships that glorify Christ, that parents and children would glorify Christ in their relationship, and that bosses and employees would have relationships that glorify Christ and that testify to the world as they look at our lives in in total that we belong to you and that 
Christ is within us, living out His life through us. Uh, Father, we pray that we might glorify You this morning and in the days to come in every way. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this passage starts off with a bang. This is, uh, uh, I know it's Mother's Day, and someone told me, you realize what you're going to preach next week is on Mother's Day, and here's the first verse. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And they said, you're either brave or an idiot, and I'm not sure which, but we're going to keep on. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you, each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, before we launch into these, I want to draw your attention to another verse uh, back earlier in chapter 5 to verse 18. Verse 18 contains... God's command to us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You see that? Be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then you see verse 19. Um, after, after that, you start seeing results of being filled with the Holy Spirit. In fact, everything after verse 19 and the rest of this book is, all, is giving you results of being filled with the Holy Spirit. That if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, this is how you conduct yourself as a believer in Jesus Christ. And so in verse 19, you see uh, that how we address one another is transformed by being filled with the Holy Spirit. You see verse 20, an attitude of thanksgiving and praise that is a result of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 21, submission to one another is a result of being filled with the Holy Spirit. And so these verses about marriage and the next section about parents and children, and the next section about slaves and masters, and the final section of the book that's about spiritual warfare, all results of living your life as a person who has been filled with God's Holy Spirit as a result of your belief in Christ. So with that overarching command in mind, be filled with the Spirit, and then these things are the result of that. What does God call us to do? Well, if you're a wife, you get three and a half verses. Now, the guys get seven and a half, okay? But here's what they boil down to. Three and a half verses, they boil down to submitting to your husband's leadership and treating him with respect. Well, what does that mean? I'm going to give you four key words on that, okay? First, it's willing. It's willing. 
It's willing submission. Now, notice I did not say optional. That's something different. But the text emphasizes that this is a willing submission. If you're a Christian wife, when you made the choice to get married, you made this choice too. But I want to draw something out of the text here that you may not see in your Bible because it, we don't even have this aspect of, of Greek grammar in English. Okay, it's called the middle voice. Okay, and the middle voice is, uh, if you're talking about verbs, uh, the middle voice is, um, it's not active or passive, it's somewhere in between. If it's, if it's an active verb, you're the one doing the action. If, you're, if it's a passive verb, it, it's, the action is being done to you. But the middle voice is about emphasizing the choice of the person to do the action. And so the idea here is that Paul is calling you as a Christian wife to willingly choose to submit to your husband. It's kind of like this. You know, Paul gets a bad rap. You know, he, he's, he, a lot of people think that, you know, Paul didn't like women uh, and since he wasn't married, you know, he just didn't understand what it was like. And so when you get a command like this in the text, well, he just, he's just kind of forceful. But I was, I was talking to Karen about this. I said, you know, I'm trying to un- explain to people what this means. And she said, well, here's a good example. She said, if I send somebody a text and I say, do this, right? That comes off one way. Right? But if I sit down with them and I have coffee and I say, you know, you really ought to do this. They're both commands, but the one comes off a lot more gently than the other. And that's really the way that this is intended to come off. You know, guys, later we get active voice. We get do this. <laughs> okay. Um, but When Paul addresses the wives, he says, you ought to do this. You ought to choose to do this because of your calling before the Lord as part of living a Spirit-filled life. So it's a willing submission. That's the first key word there. Second, it's unconditional. It's unconditional. Meaning it's not dependent on your husband earning it. Well, I'll respect him if he earns it. I'll, I'll treat him with honor if he earns it. That's nowhere in the text. It's unconditional. And your husband doesn't have to earn it even any more than his command to love you is conditioned on you being lovable. It's unconditional. When you sign up for marriage, this is part of the package you're buying. Uh, Third, it's extensive. Extensive. Not expensive, it can be that. But extensive. Meaning that the command is, if you look at the text there, in everything. Verse 33, see that she respects her husband. There's not a lot of wiggle room there. And I don't, want, I don't want to give a list, either long or short, of all of the places this might not apply. Okay? Because I don't want to seem to, to, say, to be saying, 
that when Paul says in everything, it doesn't really mean in everything. Okay? I will say this. Are there circumstances where this does not apply? Yes. Your husband is, is an ungodly man who is commanding you to sin, or if he is abusing you, you do not have to submit to that. But don't lose the force here of the text. That it's extensive. And it's hard. I know this is not easy. Trust me, if you were married to me, you would know how difficult it is. <laughs> okay. Um, I happen to be married to a woman who, who uh, has had a... a a much easier time, I think, than I would have uh, being, being, uh, being able to do this. Um, if I were married to me, I probably wouldn't still be here. For a fact. <laughs> okay. This is hard. And last one, it's revelatory. I want you to see this too. Paul makes it clear that this ordered relationship of a wife's submission and her husband's leadership is not really about them. It's not about them. It is about revealing to a watching world what the higher relationship between the, the, between the church and her Lord Jesus Christ are all about. In other words, you want to see what, what the relationship between Christ and the church is like Look at my marriage, and then you'll see. It's meant to reveal to a watching world how well Jesus loves the church and how well the church loves her Lord Jesus Christ. It's revelatory. It's meant to reveal to the world around us how a relationship with God really works. Our marriages are meant to show off the gospel, in other words. Now, let's look at husbands. Husbands, you get seven and a half verses. Or I should say, we get seven and a half verses. Okay? We get seven and a half verses, and God's calling to us is to love our wives. Now, I don't want you to miss how startling that is. And how countercultural that would have been in Paul's day as this is written. Because if you think about what the parallel verb for submit would be, the parallel verb you're expecting is not, is not love, but lead. You should, you should read, husbands, lead your wives like Christ leads the church. That's not what you get. Not at all what you get, in fact. It says, husbands, love your wives. Our command is to love. And, and as I did for, the, for our wives here, let me give you some key words to emphasize and to summarize the biblical teaching here. The first one is that this is imperative. This is the active imperative verb, love. You are the one to take the action, and it's not optional. It's not a choice. You do this. This is what Paul is telling you, okay? You don't choose to love, you love. That's the emphasis. 
gets imperative. God is not encouraging us. He is commanding us. Love your wives. Second word. This is sacrificial. You love your wife as, exactly as, in the same way, to the same degree, in the same manner as Christ loved the church. You and me, men, if you're married, are called to love your wife like Christ loved the church, which means being willing to lay your life down for your wife and her good and to put yourself to death for her sake. It's a sacrifice. And if you look at how Christ's love is described in verses 25 to 27, you see that it's not only sacrificial, but it's purposeful and it's purifying. That she benefits from being married to you. That she is not defiled by being married to you, but she is purified by being married to you. That she gets closer to Jesus as a result of being your wife rather than further away from Him. It's a love that heals and cleanses and makes the church more beautiful and holy over time until the day of her redemption. That's the idea. Not that you use your position as a leader in your home to beat her down, but to build her up. That she is drawn closer to Christ because of your love for Christ and your love for her. And third, it's a treasuring and a unifying love. Look at the, look at the text here. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it as Christ does the church because we're members of his body. You love your body. In fact, we, guys, be honest here. You don't have to raise your hand. But somewhere around the time you were 14, you started spending time in front of the mirror, right? You start doing things in front of the mirror, like checking for chin whiskers, looking for armpit hair, flexing, right? Pretending to be Superman. You know, you, uh, be honest, you, you don't have to play poker with me. You did this. Some of you still do this, right? <laughs> you get up in the morning, you look in the mirror, and you think, yep. Still Tom Cruise. Here we are. <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay. You nourish and you cherish your body, right? And Paul is making the point that if you are, if you are one flesh, and when you sign up for marriage, guess what you become according to the Word of God? You become one flesh with this woman. And if you truly are one flesh, then you treat her like you do your own body. You protect your body. You nourish and cherish and provide for and love your body. You feed it and care for it. And in the same way, when you are one flesh with this woman whom you have pledged your life to, then you live in light of that reality and you take care of her the way that you would as your own flesh. And fourth, and this is also important for, for us guys to remember, it's 
it's revelatory on our side too. In verse 32, Paul tells us marriage and love and the one flesh reality of it is mysterious. But the point is that if we live our marriages like this, that we reveal to the world the hidden reality of Christ's love for the church. And what he's saying there is this. He's saying something huge. He's not saying that the the relationship between Christ and the church is like our marriages. He's saying our marriages are like Christ and the church. In other words, uh, you know, I know Gene Staub has he collects trains and he has a train set in his house, right? And I don't know what scale the trains are, but they're little miniatures, right? And what he's saying is this: that the relationship between Christ and the church is the full-scale thing rolling down the track. And what we have is the little scale model. A little Lionel thing that we are practicing with. So that we can understand and appreciate in something we can put our hands on this massive reality that's too big for us that we can't get our arms around. But that as we live our marriages out the way that God calls us to in our homes, then what we do is we put on display something that people can see and get their arms around and understand. This is what the relationship of Christ and the church is like, only this is the miniature of it. We live, it out, we live out the gospel in our homes in miniature so that people can see that it's the representative and the model of something that's this much bigger thing that you can't really completely embrace. But here's a model of what it looks like. Here's a model of how Jesus loved us as we love our wives. Here's a model of how we follow Jesus as our wives follow our leadership. This is the model of this massive reality of the gospel being lived out for us in community. So the point here is this, of all of these verses, is that as you live a Spirit-filled life in your home, of following Jesus in your home, then it transforms your marriage. I won't ask for a show of hands, but... But ladies, if your husband loved you like this, you think you have a big problem following his leadership? Men, if you love your wives like this, do you think you're going to have big problems with finding her to follow you? No. Any more than I have a big problem following Jesus because, you know, he just doesn't love me that well, right? No, Jesus loves me supremely and therefore it's easy for me to follow Him. And that's the reality we're to put on display in a Spirit-filled relationship of marriage one to another. Now, living by the Spirit also gets into parents and children. I want to show you that here, verses uh, 6, 1 to 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. 
Now this first verse is addressed to children. If you're a child here today, this is for you. Children can live the Spirit-filled life too. The Spirit-filled life is not just for adults. It is for kids. It is for everybody. And one of the key ways that children live the Spirit-filled life is by obeying mom and dad. And there's no conditions put on this because Paul is writing this letter to Christians and the underlying assumption is that they will naturally only command their children to do what is right. Are there some conditions, extreme cases, where kids don't have to obey mom and dad? Yes, unfortunately in a fallen world there are. But the assumption is that mom and dad are walking by the Spirit and therefore they're not going to ask their kids to do something that is evil. And Paul gives kids two encouragements here. He says, number one, obey your parents because it's right. Honor your father and mother because it's right to do that. It pleases God. It's the right thing to do. It's the fifth commandment. Remember? Honor your father and your mother. That's the fifth commandment of ten. It's the first one, by the way, that has to do with relationships with people. First four have to do with relationship with God. The fifth one has to do with mom and dad and your relationship with them. And we get this second encouragement here. Honor your father and mother is the first commandment that's given by God that includes a promise from God. And it's a good one. If you do it, it will go well with you, meaning life will go well. If you learn to honor mom and dad, it will go well with you. And you will have a life that lasts a long time. Now, I have seen that proven true. I can just tell you, I have seen that over and over, that people who learn to follow Mom and dad's instruction when they're growing up, their life goes well. I have also seen the alternative to that. Because guess what? If you don't learn as a young person to follow the authority of mom and dad who love you, what happens when you are out in the real world having to submit to the authority of people who do not love you? And who do not have your best interest in mind. It, I'll just summarize by saying this. It does not go well with you. Our, our, we have some institutions with about 3 million people in them in this country. Who did not learn to obey and honor mom and dad. And they don't have names there. They have numbers. Inmate, you know, 04789 or whatever, right? Uh, it did not go well with them. We have people who are continually out of a job because they never, they, I just can't follow that guy. Can't, I can't obey him. He's your boss. Well, how didn't you learn, why didn't you learn how to do that? Because they never learned how to do it at home with mom and dad. And so they have struggles now that they, get older it does not go well with them uh, and on top of that if you don't learn to respect the authority of mom and dad a lot of times life doesn't last long either 
right? People who, who are rebels without a cause are often rebels with a, a short life. A lot of times. Kids I went to high school with, some of them, they decided one night, I remember this like it was yesterday. Kids I knew, they were driving 70 miles an hour down a narrow two-lane road in the dark, drunk. And hit a fence post, and it was lights out for everybody in the car. Remember when it happened. I remember how we felt. Because we knew these kids. And they knew better. They had been taught better by their parents. Did they listen? No. 16 years old and went to their reward, whatever it was. It does not go well with you. And now, fathers, we get a countercultural verse. In fact, this verse is so countercultural you can't even imagine. In Paul's day, if you were a father, you literally had the power of life and death over your children. Fathers could and did... In Paul's day in Rome, uh, strictly in Roman culture, they would take their unwanted daughters and drop them off at the garbage dump. They would take their sons, if their sons were, were not uh, everything that they wanted them to be, they would put them up for adoption. They would, uh, they would ha- sell them into slavery. They would, in some cases, just outright put them to death. Now, thank God, we do not have that as the culture of our day. But this verse is still countercultural to us. Paul says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Fathers in that culture are the, are the primary disciplinarians over their, over their kids. Um, in our culture, it's a little bit different. When our kids were growing up, very rarely did Karen ever say to me, "Wait and you know, say to our kids, wait until your father gets home, right?" But she did occasionally do that, and then I would come home, and she would say something to me like, "I want you to kill the boy," <laughs> right? <laughs> and I would think about it. I will go kill the boy, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Um, but, the, but, in this, but, but the idea here is this, that fathers are still very often the heavy in the house, right? That's why a fatherless home is such a hard thing. Because sometimes dad can be there and he can say what mom says in a deeper voice and it works better, Right? And, and so he addresses fathers and he says, look, don't provoke your kids to anger. And the idea is, don't be an unreasonable father. Don't be the father who is engaging in discipline that veers over into abuse. Don't be the father who engages in constant nagging or condemnation with your words. Instead, it says, bring them up 
in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And the idea is that to bring them up to understand what kind of a father God is by how you are a father to them. That as God disciplines us, and He does, right? He disciplines us for our good and because He loves us in the same way you discipline your kids. For their good. And because you love them. And you, and what you, not, because it's not only what you say about God that is instruction, what you do that demonstrates who God is. Amen? The discipline and the instruction of the Lord is meant, in other words, for you to be a model to them of who God is to you. As a dad, that's your calling. Not to, not to be unreasonable and not to provoke your kids to being angry, but to show your kids as how, in how you discipline them, how you teach them what God is like. So that they want to embrace faith in Him themselves as they grow up. Um, God is a God of grace and a God who punishes sin. We want to do that. But we want to do both of those things, not just one of those things. Right? You've you got to do both. You've got to be a person of grace and forgiveness and also discipline and punishment of sin. You only do one of those, they're going to get the idea that God is not a father in heaven, but a grandfather in heaven who just lets people you know, eat ice cream and do what they want. Right? Um, <laughs> and, and if you only do the other... You're going to teach them that God is angry and short-tempered and nasty and, and, and has, a, uh, has a very rigid standard. You've got to do both. When Jesus came, He came revealing grace and truth. And we want to be, do the same as we are fathers to our kids. And the point is, is that living the Spirit-filled life gets... Uh, into the way that we live whatever role we have if you're a child it gets into how you obey your parents and if you're a, a a father or a parent it gets into the way that you lead and train and instruct your kids and the spirit-filled life also transforms slave and master relationships uh, look at uh, verses five through nine here with me Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Now, there are a few things you probably ought to understand as you approach this portion of the Scripture. First, that slavery in the ancient world was not exactly like slavery in the antebellum south in our country. It typically was not race-based. It was typically economic. And you became a slave very often when you couldn't pay your debts. There was no bankruptcy court. You couldn't have your debts wiped out. Uh, by a court order, and if you got 
into debt and you couldn't pay, then you and as many members of your family as it would take to satisfy the debt were put into slavery. And very often as a slave, you could and, and, and often did earn money uh, working for your master and you could eventually work your way out of it. But you need to understand that it was an extensive, widespread institution in the ancient world. In fact, as many as half of the people who lived in the Roman Empire were slaves, and most of the early Christians were probably slaves. Most of them were probably slaves. In fact, given the names of many of the ones that Paul addresses in, at the end of uh, Romans uh, chapter 16, the names that they have are very common names for slaves. Many of them. And so Paul is writing to a church of which it's likely that many of its members are slaves. And it was also the primary economic relationship in society. Uh, in, in Roman culture, you didn't typically have employees as a business owner. You had slaves. And they did all the work. Uh, either you worked for yourself in a small business. Maybe you had your son or sons working for you as apprentices. Uh, but if you were big enough to have a big business, you had slaves. And look at the context here. And look at the, that's, so that's the context, but look at the content. Um, Paul addresses slaves directly. And that is countercultural. Because in every culture where slavery has existed as an institution, slaves are treated and regarded as less than fully human. But that is not how Paul treats them. He speaks to them directly as people, as brothers and sisters in Christ. He doesn't tell them to revolt. But what he does is really interesting. He gives commands to Christian slaves and then to Christian masters that if they are followed, will completely undermine and overthrow the institution from within. And in fact, that is what happened. Once Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire, slavery disappeared. Slavery got overthrown. It died out in the, ancient Ro in, in, in the Roman Empire. Because you can't follow these commands and not make it completely obvious that you shouldn't own your fellow human being. Now, we don't have slavery anymore, but these principles that are here do apply in our relationships with our masters, if you will. Our bosses and the people to whom uh, we are the boss and they're our servants or our employees. What does the text say? It says this, if you are in a servant position, then you obey and respect your boss. And you do it sincerely from your heart. Obeying them not just when they are there to watch you, but when they are not because the Lord is there and sees what you do all of the time. Amen? And we are not, at the end of the day, serving them anyway. We are serving the Lord in what we do. 
So whatever your job is, your, your ultimate job is not uh, being a transmission specialist or an administrative assistant or an engineer or a teacher or a nurse or a doc or whatever it is that you do. That's not your ultimate job. Your ultimate job is to serve the Lord in the course of doing whatever that is. We serve the Lord ultimately in our careers. And He is our ultimate boss. And so therefore we work in such a way as to be pleasing to Him. This, is, this, is, this by the way, is the basis of what used to be called the Protestant work ethic. Right? That, that all jobs that are honorable and that are moral to do are a way of serving the Lord and of honoring Him and what we do. And, and we do things that only the, even when only the Lord will see them. You know that, that, and I think this is a great example of this. You know, if you go to a cathedral and you look at some of these sculptures they have way up high. I mean, way up there. You know, they're 30 feet off the ground. And they've got them tucked back in a corner and all you can see is just the front, maybe third of this statue. And you can't see it up, you know, in any kind of a way up close. Do you know they're as finely finished on the back as they are on the front? Ever thought about why that is? It's because those sculptors, when they did that work, recognized that I'm ultimately doing something that, that only God will see. And because I'm doing something that God will see, I want to do it just as well as if this were down in the round where everybody could walk around. And that's the idea. If you're a Christian employee, that you live your life and you work at that job, whatever it is, recognizing there are going to be some things that you do that only God will see, but that one day you will have a reward from Him for having done it for Him. And if you're a boss, look at the phrase here, verse 9. It says, do the same to them. Do the same to them. It means if you're the boss, you treat your servants well because... The Lord sees, and He will reward you, and ultimately, He's the boss, not you. Ultimately, He's the boss. And second, it says, stop your threatening. You don't browbeat people into submission. You lead them like Christ, and you do it with the recognition that the ultimate boss is the Lord, and that everybody is His servant, regardless of whatever position you have in a hold at the moment so you could be fortune 100 ceo master of the universe make more money in stock options in a year than everybody who works for you makes in a lifetime and ultimately the lord is the boss and you serve him with what you do and you treat your employees as as christ has treated you In other words, 
as you follow Christ and as you live a life that is filled by the Spirit, it gets into all of the areas of your life. All of your waking hours are in some way, if you're an adult, encompassed in one of these relationships with your kids, with your boss, with your parent, with your spouse. Some one of these relationships gets into. And we are called to live in a Spirit-filled way in all of them. Amen? And if you are doing what is the point of this series and learning to make disciples, when you have someone who is a brand new believer, guess what? You're going to need to teach them how to do this. If you're a woman, you're going to need to do uh, Titus chapter 2, and you're, you're going to need to obey that and say, uh, let me show you how to love your husband. Let me show you how to, where the Scripture tells you how to do that. If you're a man, you're going to need to take these young guys aside and say, here's how you love your, life, your wife like Christ. Here's how you raise your kids. Here's how you conduct yourself at work. Here's what you do to follow Christ. And follow Him like I do. That's the goal. That's the idea. Alright? Let's pray. Father, this is a challenging section of Scripture. It gets down into where we live. In our homes and in our jobs. And Father... We are glad that you leave no stone unturned in our lives. That you turn things over and see where the bugs lie. And you call us to submit ourselves to you and to live in a spirit-filled way in all of these relationships. And Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would indeed fill us with your presence and your power that we might live in a way that reveals the gospel to all those around. They might see that a gospel that is believed is also a gospel that transforms how we live our lives with our spouses and our parents and our kids and our bosses and our employees, that it gets into every area of who we are and how we live and makes us completely different from the world in a way that is admirable and honorable and pleasing to you. And Father, we pray that we might reveal the gospel and how we live. In Jesus' name, amen.